If you are not one of the three children who are here, please get out your Bibles. Please get out your copy of God's Word. Consider together this morning the words of John 14, verses 7 through 11, page 901 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. Most of you know the drill here. You know how I work. Words, a wave of words, a wealth of words, often with an absurd abundance of alliteration. You're welcome. But my work is words. We are now going to give our attention for the next 50 minutes entirely to words. And that's weird. No one does that these days. We no longer know how to give sustained attention to words. We don't read books. We scroll through images on social media. I was on the train the other day. I was looking over a guy's shoulder for over 20 minutes on the train just the whole time. Just, just scrolled. Never stopped. The whole time. I don't know how he saw anything. I know he couldn't have read anything, but 20 straight minutes of this, of this, of this, of this. We don't know how to read. We don't know what to do with words. So here we are, 50 minutes of words. The text before us consists of 136 words in the ESV, 107 words in the Greek text. And my sermon, this is probably unwise to start off by telling you, but oh well, You can do it. Stay with me. My sermon manuscript consists of 6,163 words. Jack is so excited. Worry not, that's actually about 500 words shorter than usual. So Merry Christmas. Words. Why words? Why so many words? Well, you know by now that I don't particularly love Christmas. Forgive me. I think it may actually distract us from the very thing we claim that Christmas is about. Why do we get so stressed and sad, busy and mad around Christmas? Well, maybe it's because it really has nothing to do with with what we claim uh, it, it has to do. If you want to celebrate Christmas, that's wonderful. Go for it. You have the liberty to do that. We have a tree in our home. We give our girls a few gifts. I love the lights, and I love the snow, and I love dumb Christmas specials. Do anyone remember the 1980s, the California Raisins? There was this old claymation Christmas special on CBS, and I loved it. I found it on YouTube, and I showed it to the girls uh, a few nights ago. I I love all that stuff. I just don't think it actually has anything to do with Jesus. Why? Well, because there's no Christmas in the Bible. There's not even the slightest indication in scripture that we are to set apart some special season to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We don't know when he was born. We're not told to set apart a day for it. It's just not in the Bible. But this day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, is where we come together every single week to celebrate the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of of Christ, a weekly holiday. That's pretty neat. And that's why I hope to see you all next Sunday on the Lord's Day, the one day that is commended and commanded in the Bible. We want to give primacy of place to God's Word and the one holiday that is in that Word this day, every Sunday. So please, yes, celebrate Christmas. Celebrate Christ's birth on Christmas. That is great, but be in Christ's church. On Christmas, at least somewhere. For this year it is on a Sunday, and that day is the Lord's Day, not Christmas. Let me step off my soapbox here. I'm done with all that. All of that was to get you to the Grinch. Some of you think I'm a Grinch and a Scrooge. Fair enough. 
I do love both of those characters, but I've always loved the 1966 How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And one line frequently runs through my head. I think it's a combination of living in this city and also maybe having five kids. But the Grinch laments all those who's down in Whoville and all the noise, 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 noise. Says it four times. I love that line. And some of you are probably thinking all the words, words, words. Words. Why words? Well, the context of our text this morning is comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. 14.1. And it's love. 13.1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And some of us desperately need comfort and love this Christmas season, or any and every season it often feels like. And the disciples desperately need comfort and love in the season in which they find themselves the death and departure of Christ. And so I am desperate to communicate to you how Christ communicates comfort and love to them. There are few more practical questions than how does Christ comfort? How does the perfect person, the God of all power, all wisdom, and all compassion, comfort the troubled soul and love his troubled people? Well, that's what I want us to consider this morning. Three points, nice and simple, hopefully three points of comfort. Here's what you need to see and believe to let not your heart be troubled. Here's what I think Christ is saying in this text. He is first going to tell us that you see the Father in the Son. Okay, how do you see the Son? Well, then second, we're going to see that you see the Son in the words. And then third, I could not figure out how to word this third point, but we'll unpack it when we get there. Um, but then he's going to tell us to believe the words. And here's going to actually be the key of the whole thing. I want us to look at this preposition in. And then we find ourselves in the Father and in the Son. And that is going to be very, very important for comfort for your troubled so, so see the Father in the Son, see the Son in the words, and then we'll kind of apply it at the end and see the result of, of what happens with that. So let me read the text for you. We're focusing on John 7 through 11. I want to read the whole of 1 through 11 just to kind of set the stage and to kind of get us into our text. Because I just think that first verse is so, so important. So I'm going to read it for you again. John 17, reading in verse 1 through verse 11. Pay attention. This is the word of the Lord. This is what God himself wants to speak to you today. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's stop there. Let's pause. Let's pray. Let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, we thank you that you are the God of words. You are the God who weaves reality into existence with your almighty, powerful word. You are the God who sustains existence with your almighty, powerful word. You are the God who has spoken to us and given to us and preserved for us these almighty, powerful words. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would now in this time work through these words. Father, we pray that you would bring comfort to troubled souls. We pray that you would do that by directing us to the Christ who is comfort and who is life uh, through the preaching and explaining of these words. We pray for anyone in here who does not know this Christ as they now sit under the words that are able to make them wise for salvation. We ask that you would work through that word uh, to save sinners. We ask that you would work through this word this morning to comfort and encourage and strengthen Uh, Sinners already saved by your grace. Father, I can do none of these things, but your word can do all of these things. And so I believe in the Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would work by your spirit through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, see the Father in the Son. Brief review, we've already said that our context is comfort, but the context of the comfort is trouble. We have been talking A lot about trouble in the opening psalms recently. My go-to trouble verse has always been Job 5-7. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. But last Saturday, as my dad was standing here and reading Psalm 90 uh, during Peter and Artesia's wedding, I was struck with the realization, why haven't I been using verse 10 of Psalm 90? The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Our span of life is but toil and trouble. We are in desperate need of comfort. And that's what Christ has been providing his disciples here. He has just said that he's departing and returning to God the Father. Hold on to that. Point three. That's where you want to be. Then in verse four, he has said, you know the way to where I am going. And it's almost as if Thomas cries out in verse 5, how can we know the way? And that's Jesus, his kind and clear reply in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what we considered last time, that, that, that huge critical life or death But I want to focus here now on on the Father. Verse 2, Jesus has said, my Father. Verse 6 there, he says, my Father. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It could be tempting after the high of verse 6 to kind of miss and minimize the verses that follow Don't do that. These verses are more important than we tend to think. We are considering here one of the central themes of the book. 
And I would argue one of the central themes of reality, and if that's true, it would make it one of the central themes of your life and thus key to your comfort. And to be clear, biblical comfort. We're not talking about comfort as ease, relaxation, entertainment. We're not talking about how we tend to seek comfort in the things of the world or or self-medicate or distract ourselves from reality in our real problems with food or fitness or Netflix. I mean comfort in light of sin, in light of death, uh, comfort in light of life in a fallen world. This is central to any true eternal comfort. But look first at verse 8. We move from Thomas to Philip equally, not so comforted yet, as much as confused. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Hold on. First off, haven't we all asked and felt that at times? You just, where are you? <laughs> show up, do something, uh, show yourself. The King James puts the verse like this, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us, or, or it satisfies us. Show us the Father and we will be satisfied, as the Greek could be translated. So we're going to be thinking, what is your, it will be enough for you? What is your, and it will satisfy you? Sadly, for many of us, it is something far less than a desire to see the Father. Show me this raise, this relationship, this restoration to health, this rise, the significance. Show me this anything and I'll be satisfied. At least, before we pick on Philip, at least his request is, show me God. So he's got many of us beat here, but he's still not where he needs to be. But look closely again. What does Jesus mean in verse 7? This is important, and this starts to get at what is part of the problem for many of us today. Jesus says to the disciples, if you had known me. But wait a second. Surely, they had known him. They gave up their whole lives to follow him. They've been with him for the last three years, constantly listening to and learning from him. Philip himself said all the way back in 145, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said in 149, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Peter said back in 6, 68, these will be important words for what is to follow. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, if you had known me. And so there must then be a sense in which they certainly knew Jesus, but here... Jesus makes it clear that there is also a sense in which they did not yet really know Jesus. I wonder to how many of us Jesus would say this morning, oh, if you had known me, or we're in the midst of our trouble, we're, we're struggling, we're downcast, we're distraught, or we're in the midst of our sin, I wonder if Jesus would look at us and say, oh, if, if you had known me. You see, yes, they knew Christ, but they did not yet know him as they should. Yes, many of us know Christ, but we do not yet know him as we should fully and truly. I mentioned recently my need to take my own advice and memorize 
1 Corinthians 13. I, I did it. it. took me a while. I'm a slow memorizer. But this made me think of Paul's words in verse 12 where he says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Pause there. This is not the point right now. But you are fully known according to that verse. Right? In Christ, you are fully known and Fully loved, right? That, that, that's, like, that's the one thing that you need to know. But for now, what, what we're seeing here, what Jesus, I think, is saying is you need to know that there is a knowing and, there's knowing and knowing, right? J- Jesus is gently rebuking them for not yet knowing him as they should. They had not paid sufficient attention to him. They had not paid sufficient attention to his Words. They think they know, but they don't really have any idea yet. But know this, Lewis quote a few weeks ago, remember, it's amazingly easy to believe that we believe what we do not really believe very much at all. And it's, an important th- it's important to get this because Jesus has just said, let not your hearts be troubled, trust, believe. And so trust is trouble's solution, whatever the trouble But here we're seeing that there's more to trust and belief than we often believe. Christ's words here should jolt us awake. They should cause us to sit up and pay attention. And they should also give to the troubled of us great hope. Because many of us, we're in a situation and we talk about, well, I know all that. I've heard it all before. I know everything that I could possibly need to know. But do you? Actually, there's knowing and there's knowing. So look at what Jesus does here. I want, you to, I want you to notice first how repetitive Jesus is here. We need repetition. Jesus gives us repetition. He basically says the same thing again and again and again. He must want us to get this. Look at seven again. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Second time, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Why? Uh, because you have uh, seen me, Jesus is basically saying there. Uh, look at verse 9. It's not hard to read a bit of exasperation into Christ's words here. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not yet know me, Philip? Again, so he's saying, to, in the answer to Peter's question, Paul, uh, Philip's question, like, you, you know me. So again, he's saying the same thing here. Look at verse 9 again, the rest of it. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's the big idea. That's the point of this text. Verse 10, he continues to repeat and reiterate that point. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Save the second part of 10 for the next point. One more time, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You could count this different ways. I count six times. I think there are six times in a very short space there that Jesus basically says the same thing. Show you the Father? I have. (laughs) What do you think I've been doing these last three years? Who do you think I am? Why do you think I have come? It is the Father that Jesus has been working to reveal to them the whole time. It is the Father through the Son that John has been working to reveal to us this whole Book 1-1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Philip is right to want to see the Father. 17-3, this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God. Do you want to see the Father? But, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. More than that, going way back, Exodus 33.20, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That's kind of what we just read in Psalm 15. So back again to John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side, that is the Word, that's the Son, He has made Him known. That's the whole point of this section. That's the solution to your heart's trouble. <clears throat> Jesus is again making a staggering claim. See me, see the Father. Know me, know the Father. Keith Allen. He's one of the pastors at North Shore. I always like Keith. He used to be like a bodybuilder, big and I've always liked big, strong guys. I've always been a small little guy. So he's godly and huge. That's why I like Keith. Keith was here on Saturday for the wedding. <clears throat> we were riding back from the, the reception on the train together. And he said to me on the train last Saturday night, he said, I always thought you had a unique voice and cadence until I heard your father today. I never thought about it. I have never sat down and intentionally tried to imitate my father. I've never even considered my speaking all that similar to my father's. But Keith heard my dad once, and he saw me in him. Keith better understood my voice and style and mannerisms. He didn't realize it, but in seeing me and hearing me for many years that we've known each other, he was very much hearing and seeing my father. Then he heard my father one time, and he said, oh, that's... That's where it comes from. And that makes sense. I sat under my father's preaching for two decades. There are a few people who I have listened to more and observed more. And then you combine that with the fact that I am his son. I share his genes. Though we are distinct persons, there is a whole lot of him in me and me in him. Like father, like son. And so, by the way, if you don't like my voice or style or cadence, blame my dad. It's my dad's fault. And now, of course, this isn't a perfect metaphor of what Jesus is saying here. My relationship with my Father is not identical to the relationship within the Trinity of God the Father and, and God the Son, but it does communicate the basic idea. In seeing the Son, you are seeing the Father. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. You can't see something invisible, but you can see an image. Christ is the image. 2 Corinthians Four, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the only way to the Father because he is the only one who has come from the Father. Christ is the only way to know the Father because he is the only one who knows the Father. He is the only way to see the Father because he is the only one who has seen the Father. And so if you, like Philip, want to see the Father, look at the Son. Henry ended with the words, Spurgeon, look and live. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to see the Father who is life? Look at me. Look at Jesus. What is God like? He's like Jesus. What is Jesus like? How much time do you have? But I think that many of us still kind of hold on to this lingering suspicion that yes, maybe Jesus is love. Maybe he loves us, but the Father? 
Right? What, about, what about him? Isn't Jesus just kind of having to, to twist his arm? It's like people with me and my wife. Everybody loves her, and they're like, oh, I guess we kind of have to love him too because he's with her. Like, is that how the Father kind of is with us? Jesus cares about him, so I, I guess I uh, care about him. Did, what does God, the Father, think about us? Does he really love us? Does he like us? What do you think about what God thinks about you? Remember that there's nothing more important than what comes into your mind when you think about God. There's nothing more important than what you believe about God. Do you believe, 3.16, that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son? Do you believe, Romans 5.8, that God the Father shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts. Do you believe, 1 John 4, 7, that love is from God? 8, that God is love. 9, that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's the comfort. That, that's it. That's, that's what you need. That's all you need. There is infinite and eternal comfort in that fact right there. What do you believe about God and how he is disposed toward you? J.I. Packer is knowing God. Again, I left it in my seat. Again, I brought a book. Uh, my, my strategy is just to keep recommending that you read the same books again and again so that you'll eventually get annoyed and think that maybe if I just read it, he'll stop recommending it. All right, so deal. Read the book and I'll be quiet. But Packer argues in that book that the richest answer that he knows to the question, what is a Christian, is simply that a Christian is one who has God as Father. And then he goes on to sum up the whole teaching of the New Testament in a single phrase. You sum up the whole thing if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator God. He says you, you sum up the whole Christian faith if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. He, he says if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of being God's child and having God as his Father, for Father is the Christian name of God. And that's what Jesus, the Son, has come to reveal to us. God the Father. No one, no one spoke about God like this. There are very few limited references to God as kind of the Father of the nation of Israel or the people kind of corporately in general. No one said, my Father, our Father, Abba, Father. And then Jesus comes and hears the Father. And he says, if you want to see him, if you want to see God, look at me, he says. And so in the context of true trouble, don't miss this. Christ teaches. He tells the disciples to trust him. He further reveals himself to them. And thus, God, through that revelation, and he says, here's where you find comfort. I am where you find comfort. He doesn't say anything about their circumstances. He doesn't promise to change them. They're not going to get better. He's going to die and depart. They're going to all suffer and they're going to die. He doesn't say, oh, never mind. I'll change your circumstances. Be comforted. No, he says, here's who I am. And that changes your experiences of the circumstances entirely. And remember, this, this is exactly what Christ did at the tomb of Lazarus. Rests with mourning Mary 
and Martha. Again, we just don't comfort like this anymore. He goes to the women, sisters, mourning. He says, dead brother, look at me. Eyes on me. They're like Lazarus, Lazarus. He says, me, me, me. I am the resurrection and the life. Great trouble, find comfort in here, in me. I am bigger than all your troubles. I am bigger than death itself. Look, listen, trust. And so you, like Philip, may have come here today thinking, show me the Father. Where is he? Jesus says he's here. What what is he like? Jesus says he's like Jesus. And so you want comfort. Read the Gospels that reveal the Son who reveals the Father and read them again and again and again. We've got sermons in John. We've got Sunday schools in Matthew. We are providing ample opportunity for you to see the one whom seeing is God himself. This is where we find it. He says, look at me if you want to know what God is like. See Jesus coming and know that God has come. See Jesus teaching and know that God teaches. See Jesus healing and know that God heals. See Jesus forgiving and know that God forgives. See Jesus loving and know that God loves. See Jesus with and caring for sinners and know that God is with and cares for sinners. See Jesus' signs and know God's great power. See Jesus' death and truly know that God loves and saves sinners. See Jesus' resurrection and know that nothing can stop this God who promises that he is for you and with you and is your Father. You see the Father in the Son. Jesus comforts by directing their attention to the Father, who is life itself, and then by directing their attention to the Father through himself. He says, look at me in the midst of your troubles. Point number two, see the Son in the words. We've already started to do this, but I want to make this annoyingly and maybe painfully clear. You could be thinking, okay, see the Father and the Son? Makes sense for the disciples. They were literally seeing Jesus with their eyes as they were hearing him. But how do I See Jesus, who seeing is to see the Father. What's in the exact same way? It's through hearing him. Go back to the text. Look at verse 10 again. It's a very important verse for a number of reasons. Jesus says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Stop there. I'm largely skipping this part. I shouldn't. Uh, But we were touching on this in point one. Uh, This is how seeing the Son is seeing the Father. For the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. We considered this a while back in uh, chapter 10, verse 38, where Jesus says, Know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Uh, So, uh, this thing that we're kind of skipping over. Uh, This is actually the foundational truth of the Christian faith. I mean, this is it. Identity is everything. Our culture is kind of understanding that and yet perverting it and getting it so wrong. But identity is really, really important. Well, this is about the identity of the God who is everything. And what Jesus is revealing to us here is that the God that he reveals is triune. He is Trinity. This is how Jesus can reveal God to us. Because he is God with us. And this is what sets Christianity apart from 
everything else. This is the, we share many basic moral things. There are, you can find similarities with other religions and here, you know, don't murder people. Kind of most people agree. That's, that's, that's a good thing. Come to Sunday school or come to Bible study uh, on Thursday night. So there, there can be some overlap on various things here and there. Not this. This is it. This is the foundation upon which everything else rests and upon which sets the Christian faith apart. The triune nature of our God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and guess what? I'm not that much of a Scrooge. I really nailed the timing here. Next week, Merry Christmas, verse 16, the Father will give you another helper. It's a perfect Christmas text. So come uh, next week. That truly is the gift who keeps on giving. But we're talking about the Trinity. Shorter catechism. Three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. So I know there's great mystery here, but there is no irrationality. I know that we struggle to wrap our minds around this, but wouldn't we expect that if God is as big as the Bible claims, if he is as good as the Bible claims. The God who created the whole of reality with a word, every molecule, billions upon billions of stars. The God who knows all things and who uh, minds um, the over 8 billion minds in this world all at the same time. I can't even keep up with like the four of you that are in here by looking at you. What's that person thinking? What's that person thinking? I wonder, am I making eye contact with that person? Somehow this mind who is behind everything is aware of and conscious of and mind and right 8 billion, billion Minds. I think we crossed that in November. Eight billion. Here's this God who is this big. Surely such a God is above us and beyond us. And there will be a degree of mystery when it comes to this God. We should not be surprised if we struggle a little bit to comprehend the nature of this God. And if all that's true, again, how much more amazing then is the fact that Christ has come to reveal this God to us. That we may actually know this, the unknowable God. And plus, side note, if he is that big, surely he is big enough to handle whatever trouble you face, no matter how big it is. But my my intent right now is not to dive into the depths of the Trinity, though that would be time well spent. Everything depends upon it. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, theologian, this is awesome alliteration, but he writes, the Trinity is the ground, grammar, and guarantee of the gospel. That's good. Ground, grammar, guarantee of the gospel, right? No Trinity, no gospel. No gospel, no hope. This is central to our faith. One God, three persons. But I want to get back to how we see the Son, who that gospel is all about. So the whole point of this text is that the Son shows us the Father. See the Son, see the Father. How do we see the Son? Go back to the second part of verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm about to go on a bit of a limb here. Uh, as I was studying, I was picking up on something, I was going to do something with verse 10, so I'm coming up, working on outline, figure out what, what am I going to do. Then I went and checked the commentaries, and none of them did with the verse what I was trying to do with the verse. So, that's just basic hermeneutics. That's generally a bad sign, right? If your thought is different than everybody else's thoughts and they're all smarter than you, stick with them. Uh, but then I jumped online and I checked Calvin and boom, Calvin agreed with me. So 
No big deal. It's just me and Calvin against the world. But, in joke, setting aside, this is not a hill that I would die on, and this doesn't really change the main point that I want to make all that much, but this could be interesting. Look at the second part of verse 10 again. When you look at it, it seems like there are two things that Jesus is talking about here. It seems that he talks about the words that I say to you, and then he shifts and talks about the Father who dwells in me does his works. What I'm arguing, I'm arguing that those are one thing, before I probably get confusing and convoluted. I'm arguing that those are the same Thing. I'm arguing that here, the works of the Father in the second phrase is the words of Jesus in the first phrase. Now, this is admittedly a little tricky because that word works throughout John does most often refer to Jesus' supernatural signs, right? the, the miracles that Jesus performs, which attest to his divinity. And so Jesus does say, for example, back in 1038, believe the works talking about the signs. So he does do that. I, can't, I, I think he's saying something different here. Plus, there are, there are other uses of this word throughout John that don't refer specifically to the miracles. Jesus says in 434, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Same word, and it's not talking just about the signs. 9-4, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. All right, that, that's more than signs. Coming up in 17.4, we will see uh, the Son speaking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, that's more than just the signs. Uh, What is the work that the Father gave the Son to do? The salvation of sinners through his substitutionary work in our place. The point is the word works can be used for things other than Jesus' miracles. Plus, look at verse 12. Look down at verse 12. We're going to have to sort this verse out next week. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Well, what does that mean? Jesus just fed 5,000 people. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. He walked on water. He healed the blind and the mute and the crippled. And what in the world could that mean? It's important to get that verse right because people take this and do some crazy things with it. I have been recently irked by a supposed miracle story and it's been driving me crazy and I want to talk about it and Melissa has wisely forbidden me from talking about it because she knows that I'm mean. And she says, don't get up and talk about it. It's like, okay, fine, I won't. But this would be one of the verses that would be pointed to as a justification. Jesus performed miracles. He says, we're going to do greater signs. Look, we can do miracles. Like if Vijay were to go out for evangelism with his coffee and then miraculously caffeinate 4,000 woodsiders with one pot, for example. Or Pastor Mike, were he to walk over to Elmhurst in the middle of the tridemic and heal everyone with COVID, flu, and RSV. Jesus healed diseases. Why not Pastor Mike? I just want one person who says that they have healing and power to just go to the hospital and heal somebody. That's, That's the one thing that I want them to do. Please actually go help someone. Maybe we'll talk about this some but my favorite thing from the COVID and the pandemic was a church in the area who has a healing room uh, during the pandemic. And they, had a, they put a sign on the healing room that said, if you have COVID-like symptoms, please do not come into the healing room. <laughs> what? <laughs> Heal the person with the COVID. <laughs> come on. Uh, what means is dependent on what verse 10 means. And so look at 10 again. Jesus says he does not speak the words that he does on his own authority. Jesus has also said this before. He said this back in 8, 28. 
He said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I'm arguing that Jesus is basically saying the same thing here. I'm arguing that here, there's not, Jesus is not talking about, here's my words, and then here's the Father's works, and here are these two separate things. Again, I'm arguing that Jesus' words here are the Father's works that he is talking about in the second phrase. And if you don't believe me, believe Calvin. He says, this must not be confined to the miracles, for it is rather a continuation of the former statement that the majesty of God is clearly exhibited in Christ's doctrine, his teaching, his words, as if he had said this, that his doctrine, his teaching, his words is truly a work of God, from which it may be known with certainty that God dwells in him. He says, by the works, therefore, I understand a proof of the power of God through the words. Think of it like what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Well, how does Paul know that? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The point here, quite simply, is that the word works and that God the Father works through the word. In fact, God's speaking is God's working. Remember Genesis 1, he does not say, let there be light and then go kind of craft and make something that is light. Uh, No, he speaks it and it is. His words are his works. His words are how he works. He speaks and it is done. And I think Jesus is saying something similar in verse 10. Believe the words that I say to you, words about the Father, and believe them because I speak them not on my authority alone, but on the authority of the Father himself who works through this mighty and powerful word. Jesus has just said, Lazarus, come out. And he does. What a word. That's a powerful word that you should consider listening to and that you should consider utilizing in the face of your troubles. And so the argument is that you see the Father in the Son and you see the Son in the Word, this Word, the Bible. And remember, the context is trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that means that the solution to all your troubles is actually found within God's Word. Back to the belief. I know you believe that. I know most of you believe that. I know you profess to believe that. But maybe Jesus is saying to many of us here, if you had known me. If you had believed that the solution to your trouble is trust and that we trust him through his word. If we had believed that, we would throw ourselves at his word, which contains the solution to all our troubles. And and again, I know that that can sound trite and cliche and too easy. And I know that we can wield that poorly and, and not actually care for people and just throw this out as kind of a distraction. That's not what we're talking about. But what if it's actually true? What if it's actually true that God's word is what it says it is and that it actually is the solution to all of our troubles? Because it seems that Jesus believes that it is. He says, there's great trouble coming. Trust me. The one thing you need is God. I am the way to God. I am God. So listen and believe my words. Again, everyone is sick all the time now, it seems. Uh, feel better, everyone at home who is sick. Uh, our family has just been perpetually sick for three months, it seems. Um, I felt really bad for three weeks about a month ago, and for a week of that, just really, really bad. So there was trouble. And do you know what I did? 
I took a lot of drugs. <laughs> a lot of them. I woke up, Dayquil, immediately. Tylenol, then ibuprofen. Back to the Tylenol, ibuprofen. Glad Tabitha's not in here. Ruth's going to probably rebuke me. Oh, bedtime. Sweet, NyQuil, sleep. I had drugs by my bed so that if I woke up at 3 or 4, I could take more drugs. Right? There was trouble. There was something that I believed that brought at least some relief to that trouble. And so I gave myself to it non-stop. What if this word is infinite, eternal relief to all trouble? Then you must have and use that word as if it were truly the only ultimate comfort for your troubled heart. Go back and listen to to chapter 14, verse 1. That's why we talked a bit through how to use the word, how to read it, and then meditate on it. This is so, so, so important. Joel Beakey just flat out says that one cannot be a Christian without meditation. This is why we're going through the Psalms again and again and explaining what does this mean. This is why I memorized 1 Corinthians 13. I am an irritable person. But you know what's been stuck in my brain for the last three weeks? Love is not irritable. And so constantly that is in my head. And I believe that the Spirit is using that to confront my irritability with that word that is now there lodged in my brain. And so when I'm approaching a situation or stopping work or Vera just threw up all over me or whatever the, or whatever the thing is that I'm tempted to be irritable about, here is now the word. I'm taking my experience, what I'm dealing with, how I'm feeling about it, which is often sinful or bad. But then here comes God's word. And I'm taking that word and I'm submitting what I'm feeling and what I'm going through to that word and saying this, not this, this, not this. And then we believe that the Spirit works through that word to shape and to change and to mold our minds and to change our perspective. I I guess you can ask my wife and see and check, but I think by the grace of God I've been a little bit less irritable these last couple of weeks. Because I'm so confronted and reminded of the fact that I don't get to be irritable. Because God has loved me and he has saved me. And he has given me these six wonderful women that I get to to love. And so by loving them, I don't get to be irritable because love is not irritable. And so here is God's word that I am meditating on, that I believe that God is using to shape and to transform, to comfort and to challenge. Too many of us are simply trying to face the troubles of life without the word of Christ. We are facing great difficulties without the great resource that we have here in this living and active word that does not return void, that is able to make us wise for salvation, competent, complete. And in so doing, not only are you cutting yourself off from that which is true, you are cutting yourself off from the means through which the one who is true is present with you. And that is what you most need in whatever troubles you face. Point number three. Last one and we'll be done. I just couldn't figure out a word this one. Believe those words and be in the Father and the Son. This is what I want to hit hard next week on Christmas. This is what I want to be your Christmas week focus. Psalm 16 is this week. Oh, perfect. Read Psalm 16 all week. It's about this. And this is what I need. And this is what you need. Philip at least has an earnest desire for the Father. Show us the Father. 
So again, that, that question shows us that, that, that soul satisfaction and heart happiness is to be found only in seeing and knowing the Father. We must learn this lesson. And because God loves us, he will make sure that we learn this lesson. But I, what I want you to see for now is all the ends. I want you to focus for a second on these precious prepositions. Let me show you this, and then I'm done. Look at this. Go back again to the text. Look at verse 10, and then this will set us up for next week. Verse 10, Jesus had said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And he says later, the Father who dwells in me. Now look at verse 11. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Five ends in two verses. What's the big deal? Well, there are more ends to come. Verse 16 is the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. How can we not be troubled when Christ is departing? Another helper. Look at the end of verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Look down at verse 20. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You know this one. Look over at 15 verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Skip over to 1721. Jesus is praying for all who will believe through the disciples' word. 1721. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen, you may be in all kinds of trouble, but... But do you see and do you believe what this means? If by the grace of God you have believed in the Son of God through the Word of God, then you are in God himself and God is in you. There is a true fellowship and relationship and union and communion that is to be found in him. And it is that communion in and with him that is life itself. And that puts the whole rest of our life and our troubles and everything in perspective. Again, I think our problem is that we have, we have little understanding of what this is and what this is like and what it means to commune with the Lord through his word and find rest and joy and delight in but if this is true, this, this is everything. And so Jesus is again directing their attention up and over. Yes, there's great trouble, but combat this great trouble with this great truth. I am yours and you are mine. I am with you and you are with me. I am in you and you are in me. Christ comforts by persistently pointing you to himself and by persistently pointing you to his promises of presence and peace. Do you believe this? Do you know this? Are you learning uh, to love this and live in light of this? It only comes by grace and the working of the Holy Spirit through the living word of life that reveals to us and relates to us the God who is life. Faith fights to believe that which truly satisfies that that which is truly satisfies is found only in knowing and being known by the Lord. That faith then has to constantly repent 
as we continually uh, are drawn away to find satisfaction in the things of the world, but that faith persists by the grace of God because it sees that that which is promised is better than anything that we can find here. God is promising you himself if you will just come to him and come to him through his son. He is promising you relationship with the one that is life and joy and pleasure forevermore if you will just turn from your sin and turn to him who died that you might live. Believe and then go on believing again and again and again and again. The father is what you need. The son is how you get the father. The word is how you get the son. Listen, that's why words. That's why so many words. Because we are convinced and convicted that the word is what it says that it is and can do what it says that it can do. That it is life itself uh, through the word. That it is living and active. That it can cut you to the core and utterly change and transform your heart and do for you what nothing else can do. What if it is the universal cure and remedy? Then read it meditate upon it, memorize it, store it in your heart so that you can come back to it again and again and again. I'm feeling irritable. Why? Oh, wait, love is not uh, irritable. You need that word in your heart. Read, meditate, pray. Ask the Spirit, the Helper. Come back next week. Ask Him to show you and convince you and comfort you and then fight to believe that all you need truly is found in God Himself through his word, and then respond accordingly. If you believed that, how would you respond? If you truly believed that, what would you do? And then do it. By the grace of God, in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes my prayer is simply, I I want to believe that you are the most valuable and delightful and joyful thing. Help me to believe that this is the case. I, I do believe it theoretically, but Jesus says, if you had known me, and so I want to know him truly and fully and pursue him as if he is what he says that he is. Isaiah 26, 3 again, because I just can't get it off my brain lately. You keep him in perfect peace. Doesn't, doesn't that sound wonderful? Perfect peace. How conflicted and stormy are we in our souls? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. How can your mind be stayed on him? Only by grace, through the spirit, through the word. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust him. Ask him to help you fix your mind on him. Ask him to give you peace. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, help us to value your words. Help us to treasure them as our most precious possession. Father, help those of us who have the the privilege and the responsibility of teaching those words here at Woodside. Help us to seek to do that better and better. Father, there's so much we can learn and, and grow and improve in our teaching. But Father, first and foremost, we all need to be convinced that your word truly is living and active, that it is the means through which you mediate your presence and that you mediate your comfort and that you are uh, with us. Father, help us to be a people who love your word. 
And we ask that we would see Christ in and through that word. And we ask that we would see you, Father, as we, by faith, um, see your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, comfort the troubled hearts among us. Father, show us who you are as gracious, loving, heavenly Father. And teach us to find great comfort and rest and satisfaction in you. Father, only you can do this. And so we ask that you would. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.